Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, so it is Mother's Day. And so again, happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers in the room. And I'll just tell you, um, I love Mother's Day. I love kind of, you know, spoiling my, my wife and, and uh, uh, taking care of my, my mom. And, and I just love it. But I'll just be honest with you. Some of the Mother's Day commercials drive me bonkers. Can I just confess that to you this morning? Uh, drive me crazy because they're so cheesy. Can, can I get an amen for that? So like, let me just tell you about one that was so cheesy. And before it's over, I was crying. Um, uh, so I, there was one that came on. Maybe you saw this. There was this little girl going to school for the first day, a kindergarten, and mom was taking her, and she was so sad and so scared and so insecure about going. And so here's how it went down. Uh, she's overwhelmed, and she's like, baby, mama's going to come back and get you. And, and to prove to you that I'm going to do this, I'm going to give you, you know how precious mama's purse is. I'm like, this is cheesy. Like, come on, this is ridiculous. She gives the purse to the little girl and says, you go to class, baby. You know how much uh, this purse means to me and how valuable this is. This is going to remind you all day that I'm going to come back and get you. I was like, this is stupid. This is the dumbest commercial. Think about, just think about the commercial for a moment. This little girl is so insecure that mama's not going to come back and get her. And so her mom says, let me kind of put your mind at ease. Here's my purse. And you know I'm coming back for the purse. Like, like uncertain that I'm coming back for you. But if you have the purse, know that I'm coming back. to Come on now, right? And so I'm like, this is the dumbest commercial ever. And then the rest of it was this. It's fast forward, and now that little girl is grown, and she's leaving for college. And mom is emotional that her daughter's leaving. And she comes in, and she gives her this gift, and she unwraps the gift, and it's a purse. And then the little girl says, Mom, just so you'll know that I'm going to come back and visit you. Here's a purse. Next thing I know, I'm bawling my eyes out watching this. The dumbest commercial ever, and I'm emotional over it, all right? There's something about family that captures our heart, right? And so this morning, being Mother's Day, we're going to, in our Let Me Explain series, we're going to talk about the family. We're going to talk about uh, the family for uh, a few minutes this morning, but I want to set some, some framework up for it so that you'll kind of know uh, where we fit this into the series and why we've put it where we've put it. Not just because it's Mother's Day, but because it follows what we've already covered. The week one, we talked about the authority of Scripture. We answered the question, why do we believe the Bible? And so we just talked about the fact that we believe the Bible is inspired by God, that it's infallible, that it's inerrant that it is completely trustworthy and reliable. Then we explained why we believe this, that our faith isn't a blind faith. It's an informed faith, that we can have confidence that the Bible is, in fact, inspired by God. Um, and then we said, what does this mean for us? It, what, it, what it simply means is, is that the Bible is to be authority. It is to be uh, the foundation of our life, that, that it is truth. It should be followed and obeyed. If God is authority, amen, and if his word has been given to us, then his word should, should be the authority of our life. Week two, we talked about Jesus, and we explained why we believe Jesus is the only way. Why do we believe Jesus is the only way? And we simply kind of broke it down like this. All faith systems uh, outside of Christianity have something in common. They all acknowledge that something is broken, but the solution is something we must do in order to fix it, right? 
So that's kind of what we find in most religions, that, that something is broken and we must take ownership and we must do certain things in order to fix it. But the gospel's different. The gospel is, is that something is broken, but God in his grace and mercy has come in the flesh to live the life we, we, we couldn't live, to die the death we should have died uh, so that he could be resurrected on the third day uh, so that we want Know that he is king and he is Lord. And upon uh, faith and repentance, we might be forgiven of our sin, uh, given a brand new life, and now we can live differently. So the solution of the gospel is not what you do for God. It's what God has done for you in Christ. Amen? And so what we kind of established is, is that because Jesus has resurrected, that we can have confidence that he is the only way for salvation, that he is the king of the universe, that he is the Lord uh, over everything because he defeated the grave. So I want you to think about those two weeks. Here's what we've established. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And this King has given us his book. He has given us our constitution, our, our governance for our life. So here's what we need to know. As followers of Jesus who, says we, who say we have, we have submitted to Jesus as King, that we have trusted him as our Lord and Savior, that means that he is the King of our life and therefore his, his word should be lived out, that we should follow his command. So here's kind of what that means for us. Um, Jesus being the King has ushered in a new kingdom. He's ushered in a new kingdom. A kingdom that's under the rule and reign of the one who defeated death, hell, and the grave. So he is ushered in a new kingdom, and this kingdom has a governing document, which is the word of God. So now we as kingdom people, here's how we live. We live not through the worldview of the world, but rather through the worldview of the kingdom of God. That our life is to be shaped by, governed by, driven by, lived in accordance to the, the scriptures. That the Bible becomes the lens by which we, we live our life. And so when it comes to social issues, uh, ethical issues, moral issues, we cannot let culture be the determining factor of what we believe and what we value. Amen? Because we are kingdom people, we got to trust our king and, and live in submission to the, to the documents he's given us, to the governance system that he has given us, and align our life up with what he says is right and true and moral, not what the world says. This is why Paul says what he says um, in Romans chapter 12, verse number 2. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world or to the way of this world. Don't be conformed. In other words, don't be, as believers, don't be forced into the mold of the world. Don't be squeezed into the box of the world. But he says, rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, the way that you think and live, the, the, the way in which you see the world should be shaped by not what culture says, but what the Scripture says. And he says, and when you do this, here's what you know. You, you can discern. Look what he says. He says, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when it comes to moral issues, such as um, issues uh, regarding the family, issues regarding things like next week we're going to talk about uh, abortion and, and different uh, social and, and moral ethical dilemmas that we have in our, our society, we must not let ourselves be put into the mold of the world's way of thinking, but rather let our minds be transformed by Jesus so that we might uh, live out his ethics and his morals in his way. Are you with me? So th this is something we got to do. And listen, we got to understand the, the world wants to fit us into the mold. You know that, right? Like what's happening right now in our, our world is, is that there, there is this, this reshaping of ethics and morals. And it's very intentional from the secular society. I mean, you're seeing churches cave all, all over our nation, all over the world, modifying what we believe to fit what culture says we should believe, right? And so what's happening is as the church, rather than being transformed by the Scripture, we're being conformed by the world. And so we, we as New Beginnings, we've got to protect ourselves 
uh, from that. So there was a book written uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, I think it was released. It was called After the Ball. And it was written with really one specific agenda, and, and really it, it's, now it's become a, a way in which the world is operating. But the, the goal of this book was written to help America embrace homosexuality as the moral and cultural norm. So it was written with this specific aim. Like, are we going to reshape the way we think about marriage, reshape the way we think about human sexuality? And this book was written as a propaganda, as a strategic plan that we're going to reorient America. We're going to reorder the ethics and values and the, and the morality of America uh, to fit uh, a secularized uh, way of thinking. And here's, here's they had a three, three-fold plan. Vody Balcom, uh, a great uh, apologist and, and theologian, uh, did a, a, an entire lecture on, on social justice. And he talked about this book. And here's what he summarized. He, he said this. He said, there's a three-pronged approach. There's a three-phase approach that uh, this book lays out that now secular society is using to reshape American thinking. He says the first is this. It's desensitizing. Phase one is desensitizing. Well, how do you desensitize someone or a culture? You inundate them with images so that you, they, what is not normal is believed to be normal. Does that make sense? So what is not normal is believed to be normal. So we're going we're gonna to inundate you. We're going to put it in commercials. We're going to put it uh, on billboards. We're going to make sure we create uh, television shows about it. We're going to desensitize you. We're going to keep what is not morally acceptable in front of you to the extent, and, and we're going to portray it as if it is morally acceptable until you become so desensitized that you no longer see a distinction. And just think about commercials. Think about the world. Think about television. Think about movies. It's, it's a phase one. It's desensitizing. Phase two is jamming. What is jamming? Jamming is when you begin to rewrite the moral code. And so in other words, now, so let me just use the, the, the same sex uh, a marriage thing that we have going on in our, our society. Um, you have that moral issue that has now become what, what's considered to be a civil right. So we, we know, we know, listen, that, that racism is an abomination. It is a sinful thing. We know that, that, that there has been uh, great discrimination against minorities in our nation. And we as Christians should fight back and push back against that. That the scripture says that all men and women are created in the image of God, therefore have equal value and dignity and should be treated uh, with fairness and complete equality. Everybody should say amen to that. So we, so we agree that that's what Scripture says. That's justice. But now what's happened is, is that this moral dilemma of, of uh, homosexual marriage has become now a civil right. So now it is put in the same category as racism. Listen, and it's not the same. Right? So what's happening is jamming. N now if you hold a traditional value of marriage, that it should be between a man and a, a woman only you are considered a, a bigot. You are considered to be equal with someone who is a part of the KKK. What is that called? That's jamming. That's the second phase. That is to take what is the, the moral, uh, acceptable, um, societal agreement on certain uh, Judeo-Christian ethics that you hold. And now if you believe those things, here's what that jamming does. You either have to suppress it, all right? Because if you, if you voice it, you're going to be considered in a category. You're going to be labeled as a certain, right? You're going to be labeled. And so, but, so you either suppress it or you change your, your ways. You change your way of thinking. So that's the jamming, desensitizing, jamming. Uh, third is conversion, conversion. And this is where we are right now in the phase, by the way. 
Now what we're finding is, is that because uh, we've been desensitized and because we've been jammed, now there is great conversion happening. So that now we're raising a generation up who, who, who doesn't see a, a moral a fallacy with, with what's happening in our nation. We're just now saying with, even within evangelicalism, we need to embrace the culture as it is and accept all people for where they are. Now listen, I'm all for it. And we'll talk about this in a moment, loving all people regardless of where they are and what their sexual orientation is or, or what it is that they're value system is in regards to morals and ethics. We love them. We show grace to them. We show mercy to them. So that this is what we should be doing. But now society has put us in such a box that it's not enough. Now what Christians must do is we must embrace, we must be converted to that way of thinking. And, and that's, that's where we are. And so why do I set all of this up? It's because as I look at this passage of Scripture that we're going to deal with this morning, I want us to look at what Jesus says about the family. What does Jesus say when it comes to the issue of family, of marriage? And not just from the, 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 the gay marriage battle that we have in our, our society, but, but also from the, just the, the, the divorce statistics that we have in our culture and society. I want us to see what does Jesus say, because here's what we have people do all the time. They'll say, man, I know that traditionally Christians have held these views of marriage and family. But man, Jesus doesn't deal with that. They don't even follow what Jesus, Jesus says, love everybody. And, and, no, and So this is where we are. So people will take the, the, the silence, what they believe to be silence on Jesus, and use it as an excuse for the church to embrace it. So what I want to do this morning is I want to actually show you what Jesus says about family and marriage. And can I just put a precursor on this? So when we jump into the red letter, this is kind of a side note just to help you with Bible study. Red letter edition Bibles are great for one purpose to distinguish between in, in the Gospels when Jesus is speaking and when his disciples are speaking. That, that, that's really why it's there. The red letters in your Bible are not more authoritative than the black letters in your Bible. Why? Because we believe that Jesus is the Word of God. So listen, the entire Bible is the Word of God. So if, if Genesis deals with something, if Leviticus deals with something, then we've got to understand that this is all of it's God's Word. So, so we can't pit Jesus' words against other words because it's all God's Word. And so while red letter is great, we cannot elevate it to a place that, that it's superior to all of the scriptures. All scriptures must be elevated as the inspired word of God. End of that sermon. Let's jump into the text. Ma Matthew chapter 19, uh, Jesus is going to be questioned about divorce. Now, I'm going to talk about divorce a little bit, and I want everybody in this room who's been through divorce, or maybe you're the product of a, of a, of a broken family, I, I want you to know a couple of things as we jump into this. As Jesus deals with this and we talk about divorce, I want you to know that there's, there's no one in this room that's a second-class citizen. You were loved, you were valued, and we, we appreciate you. And uh, we, we want you to know um, that as we talk about this issue, I want to come, come across in a very gentle and humble way uh, because many of you have experienced the pains of divorce and some of the things that I'm going to talk about in regards to divorce, you're going to be able to say yes and amen to that because you, you've experienced it personally. When we talk about this subject, oftentimes we kind of have this shame and this guilt that washes over us, and we kind of go, ah, that stings. I don't want you to feel that way. I want to be able to talk about what the Scriptures talk about and, and, um, and, and be able to address this uh, in a way that gives us a clear picture of God's design for family, but also want you to know that if you've been through the pains of divorce, that we don't consider you second class. I, I, but I think you'll be able to identify with some of the things that we'll talk about this morning. Are you with me? Say amen. Amen. 
All right, so Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. So Jesus was asked about divorce, and here's his answer. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus just tells us what his uh, theology is in regards to family and marriage. So let me give you a definition, kind of define, based on what we find in the text here, let me kind of define marriage, define family for you. Uh, it's going to be on the screen behind me as I read it. I'm going to ask them to leave it up so you can write this down or take a picture of it. But here's, here's what we find from this text. So what is marriage? Uh, marriage and family is one man and one woman in a complementary, lifelong covenant relationship for the purpose of illustrating the gospel and creating a stable human community for the birth and the nurture of children, which enables society to flourish. All right. So we're going to look at God's design for the family. What does Jesus say about the family? So here's a kind of a definition that summarizes what we glean from the text that we just read. So here's what I'm going to do, because I know it's a lengthy uh, definition. I want to walk uh, through this line by line and kind of unpack for you and illustrate for you uh, w- what's happening here with this phrase. The first is this, the, the very first part of this phrase is one man and one woman. The scripture is very clear here. Jesus is very clear here. So obviously this is a hot topic issue in our culture. It's debated at the highest level of society, right? Of, of what, what, is, what is, constitutes a marriage? What is it between one man, one woman? Can we have uh, multiple spouses? Can it be uh, within couples of the same gender? But according to Jesus right here, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and take hold of his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So according to Jesus here, uh, marriage, according to God's design, is one man and one woman. This eliminates uh, heterosexual, uh, uh, homosexual marriage, rather. It also eliminates polygamy. So, so according to what Jesus is saying here, uh, po- polygamous relationship doesn't qualify for biblical marriage. Uh, homosexual marriage does not qualify for biblical marriage. It eliminates those as options because that's not according to God's design. So, so you're with me, one man and one woman. Now, I want your, your eyes right here for a minute. All right, so Jesus, Jesus is a, affirms, Jesus affirms, all right, monogamous, heterosexual marriage as what is right. This is not my word. This is the words of Jesus. But, but I want your eyes right here just for a minute because here's what I want to do. In this room, and I want to be sensitive to this, there, there may be a few people in here that you're, you're battling same-sex attraction. You're, you're battling um, thoughts that, that, are, that are homosexual in, in its nature. And I want you to know, I want to be very sympathetic to that very real struggle. I want you to know that, that what's available in the gospel of Jesus is, 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 is grace needed to struggle well. And that what you'll find at New Beginnings is a church family who will walk with you in that struggle. Who will help you find the healing that we've all found in different struggles that we uh, have in life that's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So I want you to know that you're loved and you're cared for. And, and this is a place where you can come and, and work through some of those struggles that you have. I also know that there, there are those of you here who, who um, you, you have strong opinions about this issue. And so because it's not your struggle, you don't struggle with, with same-sex attraction or, or marriage. You're, you're, you're yes and amen, and you'll, you'll kind of champion uh, biblical marriage, listen, to, to, the, to the point of which you, you, you become condemning to those who are struggling. 
But I want to remind you of the words of Jesus. How do we as believers face a culture in crisis? How do we face a culture who has an identity crisis? Here's how. We do so with grace and truth. Grace and truth. Listen, culture will tell you we need grace, but we don't need truth. Culture will say, listen, grace is you got to embrace people where they are and overlook it and just accept them and say, live the life, be you, do your deal. That's grace. And what we need is to be gracious as Christians and just embrace people and walk with them and allow them to live uh, lifestyles that we might believe are, are not according to God's will. That's, that's what grace is. But, but then you have conservative uh, evangelicalism that takes the extreme. And here's what we have. We have uh, truth, but no grace. And so what we do is we beat people up and we pound them and we judge them and we condemn them and we drive them further from the gospel. But Jesus says there is a combination that we must possess. It is both grace and truth, which means we meet people where they are, which is, by the way, where Jesus met us. We meet them where they are. We love them where they are. But we do so understanding that there's truth. And if we're going to love someone well, we have got to speak to them and pour into them and point to them the truth of what Christ has designed and where true joy and fulfillment is found. And it's not found deviating from God's design, but rather by the gospel of Jesus being reordered to it. Are you with me? We've got to have a balance of grace and truth. Here's the second statement. Second statement is this, a complementary lifelong covenant relationship. A complementary lifelong covenant relationship. So, so what, what do we mean when we say complementary? We, we are complementarian in our theology of the home. So what is that? Simply means this, that both men and women are created equal. Equal value, equal dignity. We are both the image bearers of God. When Jesus affirms the creation account, he says, haven't you read from the beginning that he made them both male and female? So what Jesus is affirming is that both men and women were created by God in the image of God. Therefore, there is an equality in regards to the dignity we deserve and the, and the fact that we both bear the image of God, that man and woman give a beautiful display of who God is. But we are distinct in gender and function and role within the home and society. Now listen, distinct doesn't mean one is better than the other. It just means that we're different. This is why Jesus, he makes the statement. He made them both male and female. Why does he do this? He's emphasizing the fact that we're both image bearers, but we are different. That there are two genders that God created. And in a culture that wants to add more to the list, we've got to get back to the only list that matters. That, that, that God made two distinct genders, male and female. So we're complementary in this, is that we are equal, but we are distinct. And as we work with one another within family and society, bringing to the table the distinction, here's what happens. What one lacks, the other provides. What one lacks, the other provides. Right? So we're now we're complementing one another and how we function. This happens in the home, in the church, and in much of society. And so, by the way, we, we are different, right? Like, men and women are different. Can we, can we acknowledge that? I got two daughters and one son. We're different, all right? We're different. And I parent my daughters differently than I parent my son. Why? Because they're different. God's made them uniquely different, and so we, we, we're complementary uh, at our core. And then he says this. So here's the next part of that phrase. In a lifelong covenant relationship, lifelong covenant relationship, Jesus does something. He quotes Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24, the first wedding ceremony in the history of creation. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and take hold of his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Jesus quotes this. Now, how many of you grew up on the King James Bible? Anybody here? All right, so I, I grew up memorizing scripture from the King James Bible. And it's like, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So the idea is leave and cleave. Leave mom and dad. Hello. Leave mom and dad and cleave to your wife. The word cleave there is important. The word literally means in the original language to be glued together, a, 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 to be attached permanently. In other places of scripture, this idea of cleave is used in the context of establishing a covenant relationship. So what's being implied from the beginning, and this is what Jesus affirms, is that marriage is not just to be between a man and a woman, but in a complementary, lifelong covenant relationship. That marriage was meant to last, that marriage was meant to be a part of, of, of society, that when you unite with someone, that it was a lifelong covenant commitment. But here's what we've done in our society. Listen, and this is, this is uh, the, the, the truth and the reality. We have made divorce nothing more than a rite of passage. We've made it accessible, affordable, and easy. And what's happened is, is that the divorce rates have skyrocketed in our culture and society. This is a, this is a deviation from what God's design is. So, so what we do is we treat marriage like a contract, not like a covenant. Covenant is binding. I will even if you don't. A contract says my doing, my part of the contract is conditioned upon you doing your part of the contract. So imagine, so imagine if you had, like, like you go to weddings, right? So you go to a wedding. What happens? They stand in the front and someone says, uh, they, you know, they, they exchange vows. Very sacred moment. I take you to be my wife, to have in the whole from this day forward for better or for richer or in sickness and in to what? Death do his part, right? You get it. You know it. But it's funny, it's funny that in our society, we have those vows. But listen, our marriages look nothing like the wedding. So listen, here's what I, I'm just going to propose this. I, I think as a society, we ought to have weddings that reflect the marriage. What that means is imagine if you go to a wedding and you're standing there and they look at each other and they say, I'm going to take you today to be my spouse. Having to hold until whatever time I deem appropriate for me to move on. You talk about chill bumps, right? That's going to be just moving the heart. Hallmark moment. For richer or richer. As long as you, long as you keep the 25 pounds off, they say you're going to gain when we get married. Right? As long, as long as you make X amount of dollars, like, like what's going to happen? If you're at that wedding, right, you know what you're going to do? You're going to get up and you're going to walk out and you're going to take the gift that you brought for them and you're going to take it and exchange it for something else, right? And you're going to keep that thing. Why? Because you don't want to be a part of that. And yet, here's what happens. That's what most of our marriages look like. It's all terms and conditions. Jesus says this. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You know what he says here? That two become one is not just a ceremonial connection. It's a divine union. What God has joined together, the two become what? One flesh, one body. And so I want you to think what Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart, cut apart, pull away. This is very graphic. One, one author said this. John Nolan said this. He says, when Jesus is no longer two but one flesh, he aligns divorce with the violence of something like mutilation, amputation, and dismemberment. 
So imagine if, if, if someone says, okay, I'm going I'm to take you as a person. I'm going to cut you in two. He said, this is what happens when, when, we, when we go through divorce. Now listen, again, if you've been through the pains of divorce, I, my heart aches for you because many of you know the pain that goes along with it. This is why divorce is such a painful thing. And there's so much baggage that goes on for a lifetime. And I think one of the great misconceptions of, of a bad marriage is if we just divorce, man, I don't have to have the baggage anymore. And here, here's what you, you find is that that, that that covenant relationship, even though legally you no longer are married, the, the, the pains and the baggage that was in that marriage go, goes with you for your entire life. And so he, here's, here's what Jesus is saying. We, we, we gotta, we've got to elevate marriage and understand it's a lifelong covenant relationship. Why? Here's the third phrase. Uh, to, the marriage is to illustrate the gospel. So, so it's for the purpose of, or the primary purpose of illustrating the gospel. Now, this is what makes marriage so beautiful. So Jesus emphasizes here the covenant relationship to the point of which he says, God has done this. God has joined this together. You're no longer two, but you're one flesh. Now, why does Jesus put so much emphasis on the covenantal nature of marriage? And here's why. It's because marriage is meant and intended by God to be a picture of something greater than just human relationship. It is designed at its very core to be an illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul picks up on this. I want you to listen to what Paul says. He's going to quote the same verse of Scripture that Jesus quotes, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is Paul doing there? He's quoting what Jesus quotes in, in Matthew chapter 19. He's going back to Genesis chapter 2:24, and he's talking about the original wedding, the original marriage, the establishment of the family. And he says, again, there's a covenant relationship where two become one. And then verse 32, look what he says. This mystery, what's this mystery? The mystery of marriage, the mystery of the union of the covenant. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. You know what Paul is doing here? He's unlocking for us the mystery of marriage. Paul is saying to us from the very beginning when God in Genesis 2.24 ordained the family and designed marriage, he did so with the cross in mind. He did so with the gospel in mind. What Paul is saying is that God created marriage to be a living, breathing illustration of what Jesus would ultimately do for his bride, the church. And so as a husband and wife live in this covenant relationship where they love unconditionally, where they accept and embrace the faults and the weaknesses and the failures of their spouse and give them unconditional love, and as that is reciprocated, here's what happens. The world gets to see Christian marriage, and we marvel not at the marriage, but at the God gospel of Jesus because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. I'm going to give you, listen, this is marriage tip moment, all right? And when I'm done and you go practice this, you can just drop like a $4,000 check and just send it to the church because that's what you'd be paying your divorce lawyers, all right? Or maybe more. Um, the, key to, the key to marriage is, is it's, it's simple but not easy. You with me? The key to marriage is this. You drink in the gospel. Wash yourself in the gospel. Breathe in the gospel. And then give the gospel to your spouse. Wash yourself 
and immerse yourself in the gospel. Breathe it in and then exhale it. Breathe it out. Wash your spouse with the gospel. What does that mean? Remember where Jesus found you, the condition you would be in without him, the failures and weaknesses that he embraces you, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. It's not that he loves you when you got your act together. It's not that he gives his grace to you when you deserve it. It's that when you were undeserving, he poured his love and mercy and grace on your life so that you might be his, even though you have no reason to deserve that whatsoever. And because he has done that for you, you embrace your spouse for the very same reasons. You give grace to them and mercy to them. You love them unconditionally, even on the days when they least deserve it. That's the key to marriage. That's the key to marriage. I've been married 18 years, and there's been better and there's been worse. All right? I'm typically the cause of the worst. I'll be honest with you. All right? You know what holds our marriage together? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. When I'm unlovable, my wife loves me. Why? Because that's where Jesus uh, met her. That's how Jesus loves her. When she fails, I love her still, and I offer grace to her. And Jesus, as he works in my life, I'm becoming quicker to forgive and quicker to reconcile and quicker to move into harmony and unity because Jesus is doing a work in my life. It's all about the gospel. This is why I'm not anti-Valentine's Day. I want you to hear me say this, all right? But I think Valentine's Day is so ludicrous, all right? Can I just be honest with you? Some of you men, you want to say amen right now, but I'm going to advise you not to, all right? So let me put a precursor on here. Men, when I say Valentine's Day is stupid, should be erased in the calendar, all right? Is that too strong? Um, so he, I, I want to pr- pr- put a precursor, all right? Mama gets roses, and she gets a gift. She gets dinner. She gets a night. Like that, we, I, I dote on, on her like crazy on Valentine's Day. My daughters, they get stuffed animals. It used to be delivered to school. Now my younger one allows me, older one won't. I mean, she just won't do that anymore. And so, I, 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 so I, Valentine's Day is a big deal to Connor's household, although I think it's dumb, all right? But, but here's why I think it's dumb. This whole idea of romance being what undergirds the relationship is, is just ludicrous. It's just crazy. I mean, the whole concept of, of Cupid, think about Cupid. The grown man in a diaper flying around with a bow, shooting people. That's not, we don't want a picture of him on a card. We need to put him on the terrorist most wanted list, right? <laughs> so just think about that. Just, I mean, you, you just, you love, that's what love is. love is. Relationships are about romance. Love is just about this spontaneous romantic feeling. I just, then boom, he shot me in the tail end, and I don't know what to do. It's like, there she is. And I'm going to, like, that's what we have as a society. And listen, I know you laugh at this, but this is how most of you measure your relationship and your marriage. Think about how unstable If your marriage is built upon romance, think about how unstable your marriage is. If this whole thing with Cupid, I just got shot. I don't know. The heart wants what the heart wants. I'm just drawn. It was bigger than the both of us. I don't know. I wasn't looking for it, and it just hit me. If I go home and tell my wife that, she's going to say, you better be talking about a bus. (laughs) Right? Think about how insecure my wife would be if that was my view of our relationship. So I'm at the mall buying her something for Valentine's Day, and Cupid shoots me. I mean, think about that, that, how silly this is. But for most of us, we bail on our marriage because I just don't feel it anymore. I don't have the butterflies anymore. 
I don't, I don't, he doesn't do it for me. She doesn't do it for me anymore. It's just not what I thought it would be on year 10. I don't have that feeling. Can I just tell you, in 18 years, our feelings have come and gone. But what's undergirded the relationship is the gospel of Jesus Christ that binds us together despite our feelings and emotion. Can I just give you some marriage advice? Listen, if you're not feeling it today, just hang in there because eventually the feelings will return. So that's another sermon. Last phrase. The last phrase, one man, one woman, and a complimentary, lifelong covenant relationship for the purpose of illustrating the gospel and creating a stable human community for the birth and nurture of children that enables society to flourish. So where do I come up with that from Jesus' statements? Let me give you where we get this. Um, Jesus, when he's asked about marriage, goes back to the beginning. He goes back to the original design. That's why he says, have you not read from the beginning that God made them male and female? And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. So when when Jesus says, have you not heard from the beginning, he made them both male and female. Jesus is referring back to the whole creation narrative. He's he's referring back to what God has done in the the origin of of society when we originally created humanity. So here's, here's what Jesus is basically affirming. That in creation, God makes male and female and he brings them into a covenant lifelong union with one another and then he gives them the cultural mandate what is that be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it have children within the context of one man one woman uh complementary uh complementary a lifelong covenant relationship have children, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, have dominion over, make creation flourish. And then later on, he tells them to work it and keep it. So the mandate is be fruitful and multiply, raise image bearers for the kingdom, raise image bearers of God's glory so that God's image might fill the earth through, through the multiplication of humanity. And as you do so, bring creation under subject to me. So here's what you have. God's plan, when he says be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth, God's call for humanity was to build societies, establish civilization, go and create communities. Create states and cities and nations. Go, go create a social communities. This was his design. So how does he do this? How does he uh, allow man to do this? He calls them to be fruitful and multiply. So listen to me. Put the two together. Go create civilization. What's the very fabric, the beginning foundation of it? The family. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Create communities. Establish civilizations. By entering into a covenant relationship, having children, raising them up, where they multiply, have children, raise them up, so that the very fabric of society according to God's design that allows humanity and society to flourish in its greatest way is when the family unit as God's design is the foundation. Does that make sense? And so here's what, 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 when we see this, here's what you've got to understand. If, if, if the very fabric of society is to be God's design for family and marriage, and family and marriage begins to be broken down and we deviate from God's plan, what happens to society and culture? It breaks down with it. So look, look what's happening in our world today. As goes the family, so goes the culture. 
Because we have fatherless children. Because, and I thank God for single mothers. Some of you are in this room are single mothers, and I thank God for you. Because you work harder than you, most women have to. And you're doing the role of both mother and father. And you are, are fighting to, to raise children up. And some of you in this room, you, you, you should be praised because of what you do. And that doesn't diminish uh, women who are married. But some of our single mothers in this room, you should be applauded. But as we've seen in our culture, um, children in single-parent homes, divorce becoming most common in, in culture, as we've seen us deviate from God's design of the family, here's what we've seen. We've seen the collapse of culture and society. So, so let's, just, let's just say this. Let's just be honest, okay? For the last, let's say, 20 years, we've been on hyperdrive of moving away from God's design for family. Would you all agree with that? Say amen. We've kind of been on hyperdrive. And even if you're someone here and you, you think that's the good direction, you've got to acknowledge that's the direction. The last 20 years, we've been on hyperdrive that direction. Let me ask you a question. Have we gotten better in the last 20 years or worse as a culture and society? You know, all the sociologists, i got stuff I was going to read, but I'm not going to. All the sociologists and all of the people who analyze culture, you know what they say? With the breakdown of the home, here's what we have. An increase in crime, increase in poverty, increase in violence, increase in uh, teen pregnancy, increase in fatherless homes. In, all of that is on the rise. It, it's costing our nation. One of the numbers I read uh, about, um, I think it was uh, like, like $60 billion annually just to meet the needs in poverty that's a direct result of divorce in our culture. So he, here's my point. Why does Jesus drive us back here? Why does Jesus bring us back? I want to talk about marriage, so here's what i got to do. Jesus says, i got to go back to the beginning. i got to go back to God's original design. What is the family? What is marriage? What is the home? i got to go back to the beginning because everything, and I love this because they're asking him about divorce, and Jesus makes the statement, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And then they said, well, why did Moses give us a certificate of divorce? And he said, because of your hard hearts. All deviation from God's design for marriage is a direct result of the broken heart, the broken and hardened heart of man because of sin. All deviation is a result of sin. So why does Jesus drive us back to the creation account? Listen, this is the great news. This is the hope that we have in this room because the gospel of Jesus is ushering in a recreation. The kingdom of God is coming. And as men and women who are a part of the kingdom of God reorder our life according to the kingdom ethics and values, what God's design for creation is now happening. And there's a day coming when Christ returns and he will restore all things to the way it was. So, so why does Jesus go back to creation as the standard? Because that's where the gospel is moving us. That is why we as Christians, we must hang on to what God has revealed as design. And push back anything that would call us to deviate from it. So how do we do this? Let me give you just a couple of things to write down. I'm not going to spend much time here. But I want to I give you these things because I want you to have some takeaways. Four takeaways from this morning. Number one, don't waver from God's design. As a family, what do, you, what do I need to do as an individual follower of Jesus? Don't waver from God's design. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Hang on to, to the kingdom ethics. 
Submit to the kingdom of God. Let his will unfold in your life. Don't waver from God's design. Number two, fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage. Marriage is hard. Two sinful people broken, uh, uniting together in a covenant, lifelong relationship till death do us part. Guess what? Death could be an option, right? Fight for your marriage. You say, well, it's not supposed to be this hard. Yes. Your spouse is married to a sinner because they're married to you. You're married to a sinner because you're married to them. But fight for your marriage. Can I tell you the greatest gift, men, the greatest gift you can give your son is not a great curveball. The greatest gift you could give your sons is to love his mother and be faithful and don't walk out and say, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. Fathers, the greatest gift you can give your daughters is to not abandon their mother, but to be faithful to their mother. And show them what a real man looks like, how he takes responsibility, and he takes his covenants seriously. Some of you mothers, listen, the greatest gift you can give your children is to love their father and to fight for it. And listen, I am not telling you if you are in an abused situation that you should stay in an abusive situation. I would tell you if you are being abused as a woman physically, sexually, or, or emotionally, then I would say immediately get help. And, and New Beginnings would be a great place to start. We'll walk with you. But listen, we've got to fight for our marriage. Number two, number three, rather, shape your child's heart and inform your child's mind. Shape your child's uh, heart and inform your child's mind. Here's what that means. Understand the, 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 the three-phase process, desensitizing, jamming, and converting. Our children are being converted. And if you don't shape their heart, culture will. I don't want my daughter's heart to be shaped by Taylor Swift. I don't. I want, her, I want her mother and I to be able to shape her heart and what she loves and what she values. I don't, I don't want my children's mind to be shaped by what they see on television. You know what that demands? It demands that you turn the TV off every now and then and you have conversation. And when your kids bring up a social issue, you sit down and go to God's word and you say, okay, here's what's going on and we need to talk about this. And look them in the eye and say, I don't care how often you see that, that is not God's plan. Number four, this is the last one, engage the culture with grace and truth. Engage the culture with grace and truth. We need to be able to be men and women with calm hearts, poised, confident in who we are in Christ over a cup of coffee to talk with people of opposing views and meet them with the grace and the mercy of the gospel but with the truth that we stand on without wavering. That's what's going to reach our culture. So we, we as men and women, we've got to stand firm. Listen, we've got to stand firm and we've got to speak soft. We've got to listen well. And we need to love the culture enough to engage it. We don't hide from it, we don't run from it, and we don't just protest it. We build relationships, we have gospel conversations, and we do so in love. Are you with me? Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to ask you to bow your heads. Our team's going to come out and they're going to sing and we're going to worship for a moment. And I just here's what I want to lay before you this morning, whether you're single, married, mother, grandmother, grandfather, Father, whatever your status is socially, 
I want, I want to take a few moments to just pray. If you're here with your family, if you're here with um, your, your, your spouse or your kids, and I want to encourage you to maybe come to the altar and pray with them. Pray. We want to have some uh, staff members here. If you, you need prayer, if you're going through uh, a struggle within your home, we want you to know that we're available. Um, but, but whether it's standing at your seat, kneeling at this altar, altar or talking to one of our uh, staff and spouses, we want to make ourselves available. We want to pray and take a few moments and just get before the Lord and just ask the Lord to do a, a special work in our home. That we would become everything God wants us to become. That we would align ourselves with his design. And Jesus, we love you. We thank you now. And we ask that you would move in our hearts. I pray the gospel would become real in our families. That you would make new beginnings a strong place in regards to the homes. So God, I pray that we could take a few moments and just seek your face. Let us be vulnerable and honest and desperate. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's worship. Our altar's available. I want to challenge families to pray. Get with the Lord. Seek His face. Ask for His direction. And let's just see what God might do in our homes.